here to bring some uh, to pass out the uh, the handouts to you, so you'll get that shortly. And I listed everything, so you don't have to worry about getting lost. It should all be present there for you. Um, well, like Ethan said, it's uh, great to be with you here as we've reached the end of our overview of our church's doctrinal series. And um, I hope that this study has been a blessing to you and that you've learned much. As I said last week, uh, I know that uh, many of you wish that we had more time to go through some of these topics in depth, but um, because it's an overview, we, we're just giving you generalities uh, for now, just parts of it. But I do encourage you to ask questions um, and uh, to ask where you can explore more of some of these things. Uh, we we want to teach you. That's, that's our joy. We're glad to teach you. But at the same time, uh, we also want you to, to dig and to explore on your own, too, to see, um, to, to, to have some personal investment in the scriptures so that you can receive the most benefit. That being said, tonight is an important night, and uh, there is way too much to cover, with, uh, at least to cover well in the time allotted, but uh, as a result, I have book recommendations for you at the, uh, in the back of your page, uh, your handouts, so that you can uh, pursue some independent study. Um, I'm going to push you a little bit in terms of content. We're going to have a lot of content tonight, but I hope that it will be helpful for you. I've also, as you can see, provided for you um, the doctrinal statement of San Francisco Bible Church regarding uh, marriage, gender, and sexuality. But I figured if I started off reading that thing, you can see how long it is. It'd probably take us too much time, so I'm not going to read it. You can read it later. But to to provide a roadmap for uh, what we're going to be going over tonight, since our sermon is topical and it's going to look at multiple texts, I want to clarify some things with you up front. Our goal this evening is to establish a Christian understanding of sexuality as a whole. Okay, we're hoping to have a Christian understanding of sexuality as a whole. We will address homosexuality in our conversation, but not in great depth. Um, tonight is not intended to be an apologetic argument as to why homosexuality is wrong and how you can use the Bible to fight your friends or coworkers to prove that you're right. That's not at all what tonight's intention is. Uh, we want to win people over for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, and so we want to be kind and gracious in that way. Instead, our goal is to have a biblical conversation about our sexuality so we can understand um, and honor God in how he has made us all sexual beings. We will attempt to gain a biblical understanding of our sexuality by looking at three necessary truths about our God-given sexuality. Three necessary truths about our God-given sexuality. But before we look at our, um, before, before we begin looking at these truths, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for your loving kindness to us. You have time and time again shown us how good you are and we cannot help but be in awe of the salvation that you give. We understand that tonight might be difficult for some of us, that it might be awkward, it might be strange to focus a lot of time in on sexuality, but Lord, we pray that you would help us just to have ears to hear as we understand that this is something that you have given us. This is uh, something that you have said is good. And so we pray that you would just give us, um, that you would give us ears to hear and that you would allow for us to be able to understand what your purposes are and how we ought to respond to your purposes. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
So we're going to take a look at our first necessary truth that uh, we want to understand about our God-given sexuality, and that is God's good purpose for our sexuality. God's good purpose for our sexuality. Uh, Returning to Genesis 2, we're going to look at verses 23 to 25 at the start. It says this, "The The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So last week, we established that God created mankind in his image, male and female, he created us. Humanity uniquely demonstrates an aspect of who God is as we are thinking, feeling, and choosing beings just as each member of the Godhead is thinking, feeling, and choosing. Now, while God could have created Eve at the same time, and in the same manner as he's created Adam, God delayed ever so slightly in the creation of Eve to show the close interrelationship between a man and a woman. Because woman was made from a man, God tells us that men who get married will leave or separate the close relationship he has with his parents and form a new family with his wife. Of course, neither individual separates fully from their parents as they'll always be related, but marriage creates a new family as man and woman come together. The one flesh union between a man and a woman, between a husband and his wife, is certainly a reference to the sexual union between a husband and wife, but marriage is so much more than sexual union. As husband and wife grow together in the sharing of their thoughts, emotions, and wills, as they grow together in their pursuits as a family, as, and as they worship and serve God together. Despite the concept of the one flesh union being more than sexual oneness between a husband and a wife, it's also important to recognize that human sexuality is not a bad thing. Human sexuality is not a bad thing. God intended for men and women to get together in marriage. He intended for husband and wife to enjoy one another in this life. It is a good gift that God has given mankind so that we can fulfill his plan for us to be fruitful and multiply. For those of us who've grown up in the church, teaching in the church has told us that sex and sexuality is a good gift from God. And we're familiar with that. Yet, even though we're familiar with that, even though we would affirm that, uh, and affirm that it is good within the confines of marriage, we are at times a little too careful, perhaps even a little overly sensitive when it comes to thinking well of the sexuality God has given in us. And I want to be really careful here. I want to be really careful here as I say this, because I don't want you to think too much about sexuality before the time is proper. But I think, I think we have accidentally placed God's good gift in the sin category, all of it anyway, in the sin category because of our desire to be careful and pure before God. But sexuality in its proper context, in its proper context, is not something to be abhorred, disgusted by, or feared. The Song of Solomon was a book given to the people of Israel to demonstrate to them the goodness of marital love. All throughout the book of, of Song of Solomon, you have Solomon and his Shulamite bride expressing their love and admiration for one another. 
Now, I've un- now, I understand that there are some people in church history who said that the book is not a picture about a marital relationship between a husband and a wife, or an eventual husband and a wife, but it's actually about God's relationship with the church, or God's relationship with his people. But if you read through the entire book of Song of Solomon, and I know a lot of you have avoided it because it's weird, um, the interp- that interpretation is awkward. It's forced when you read the book in depth. So it's more naturally read in the context between the couple that is about to be married in the book. What this means then is that in inappropriate context, as you, as you read about husband or soon-to-be husband and soon-to-be wife expressing mutual love and admiration to, to, uh, towards one another, that sexuality ought to be understood as God's good gift for mankind to enjoy. Yet, the restraint and accountability asked for by Solomon's bride in Song of Solomon 2.7 is appropriate. She says this, or she asks this, I adjure, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. If you have the ESV, it says until it pleases, talking about love. What the Shulamite bride recognizes here is that God's gift of sexuality is a good thing. It's something that's meant to be joyed, but it is not to be aroused or explored until the appropriate time to enjoy God's gift. The New Testament affirms the goodness of God's plan for couples in marriage as well as Jesus affirms in Matthew 19.6 that man and wife have become one flesh in marriage by God. And since God binds them together... No one should separate husband and wife. Later, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul answers questions about singleness and marriage from the Corinthians, and he tells them two reasons, two reasons why it is good for people to be married, even though he does admit that singleness is better. So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7, we'll take a look at those two reasons. The first reason it is good for people to be married is found in verse 2, when Paul says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. We ought to get married because it is a companion gift to God's gift of our sexuality. Paul recognizes that the human heart is tempted toward a misuse of sexuality for a purpose that God did not intend in general. All sexual sin is in view here. All sexual sin is in view here, which is why the word immorality is used. Notice that God does not say here in verse 2 that the problem is human sexuality. There is no problem with human sexuality in and of itself because God created it as a part of who we are. It is a good thing he designed and gave us. The problem that all human beings run into, some more than others, is the misuse or distortion of the sexuality God has given to make sex about ourselves rather than the God-intended purpose of serving our spouse, whether our spouse is far off in the future or if we're already married. In order to help us use our sexuality properly, in order to help us use his gift properly, God gave us marriage. Again, sexual oneness with our spouse is not the end goal 
of marriage. It alone is not the purpose of marriage, but it is a gift that comes along with marriage. We'll take a look at that a little bit more as we explore the second reason why God gave us marriage, which is for our purity. God gave us marriage for our purity. Skip down to verses 8 and 9. It reads this, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, What Paul's saying here is God has given us a powerful gift in our sexuality, and he knows as a result that that, that, um, our self-control over our, our sexuality can be difficult. And as a result, Paul reminds the Corinthians that though singleness is better because we can focus on living a life undistracted for, uh, for the purpose of serving God, a concept that we'll return to later, we should get married if we burn with passion. We should get married if we burn with passion. You've probably heard that in some form or fashion, and we kind of joke about it uh, at times, but this is a legitimate reason to desire to be married. It is a re- legitimate reason to desire to be married. It shouldn't be the only reason, but it is a legitimate one. God provides the gift of marriage so that we can rightly enjoy our gift of sexuality. And I'm going to continue to stress this to you. Sex is not the only reason why God gave us marriage. It's not the point of marriage. It is, however, a way that all of God's gifts can be realized fully. Now, God does not give us sexuality on its own to cruelly mock us as we can't do anything with it, because if we were to do so outside of marriage, it would be sin. He intends for us to use our sexuality in marriage. And for some of us, it may seem like God is only giving us half of the present, half of the gift in our lives, because dating, let alone marriage, continues to elude us. Of course, this also is a topic that we don't have time to fully explore tonight, but let me try and care for you by saying this. For those of you who are struggling in your singleness, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. You are not an incomplete person. You are not broken. You do not need to be fixed. God has not forgotten you. You are whole as you are. Because God has not forgotten you, he has not ceased to show his goodness to you. You can still trust him. Even if he doesn't give you the gift that you desire, he does give you the greatest gift of all, if you're saved, himself. While that might seem like a pitiful consolation prize, especially when we have a wave of weddings on the church calendar and You probably have to watch as some of your non-Christian friends get married and even others have children, but please don't forget, please do not forget the immense treasure that is God himself, the immense treasure that is God himself. He is far, far greater than the sum of his gifts that he allows for us to enjoy here in this life. He truly is enough in this life to satisfy If he gives us marriage, if he gives us children, praise God, what a privilege. But if, if he withholds those gifts and gives us singleness, praise God. 
Praise God, because he has still given us far more than we deserve in this life. He has given us salvation, and not only has he given us salvation, he's given us a church family as well. Oftentimes, when we focus in on our singleness, we just think about the fact that we're alone. Brothers and sisters, you are not alone. If you are here, you are a believer in Christ, and you are single, you have church family to to be with. And I know that that might not seem like much, but you have brothers and sisters who will walk alongside you, who will care for you, who will be there for you, who will love you, that you can call brothers and sisters. It might not seem like much to be a church uncle or a church aunt, but you can still take a part in body life as a single. You are not worthless just because you're single. You have a purpose. You, you have a role that you can fulfill here in this church. So please do not despise your singleness. Do not despise your singleness. I wish I could say more regarding this because I know that um, yeah, there's the question of like, am I forever single? Am I gifted with the gift of singleness? I, I know that that's there. That's there for another day, okay? So if we, if we decide to do a relationship series, don't roll your eyes and groan. We're, we're, you know, it's important for us to know. Anyway, um, going back to sexuality, I'm not trying to be gross or overly explicit in our discussion about sexuality, but what I am trying to point out to you is this. Uh, within these two, two New Testament passages and other passages within the Scriptures, marriage continues to be a good thing despite the fall. Marriage continues to be a good thing despite the fall. It is a gift from God that is meant to be enjoyed. And a part of that gift is not just companionship, it is not just friendship, but it is also sexual union between a husband and a wife. God's good purpose in giving us sex can be described as the creation mandate of be fruitful and multiply, but as we can see through Jesus and Paul, our sexuality is a part of the good gift in marriage that brings husband and wife together in loving service to one another. And the reason why it can be difficult at times to live with our God-given sexuality is the second necessary truth we want to understand about our God-given sexuality, which is that sin distorts God's good purpose. Sin distorts God's good purpose. This, this point, of course, comes, to no, comes as no surprise to you because you know that as the result of the fall, sin has corrupted everything, and that includes our sexuality. Now, I originally was thinking about walking you through all the different examples of fallen sexuality and how people have abused the sexuality that's been given to them, but I think a more helpful and more effective use of our time is if we look at the chief sin alluded to earlier, that is at the root of all immorality, and that is selfishness. Selfishness is the chief sin at the root of all immorality. Why do I say that the root of all sexual sin is selfishness rather than lust? Because any sexual sin committed by a person, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual sin, is motivated by more than purely sexual desire. Any sin that's committed, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, is motivated by more than purely sexual desire. The motives that lie behind sexual sin are many, but here are a few for you to consider. Affirmation. 
People might be tempted to sin sexually because they want others to acknowledge them or attribute worth to them. If they're not getting that in their marriage or if they're not getting that in their lives, they will desire sexual sin because they feel like that's what what they will get if they engage in it. Another reason is fulfillment. People give themselves over to sexual sin for relief from the estrangement that they feel in life. For example, those who commit adultery, and honestly, that's the better word to use, not affair, because really an affair is adultery, so just use the biblical word. Those who commit adultery might do so as a relief from a, quote, wrong, quote, unquote, marriage, a bad job, or stressors. It's our ripcord to a seemingly better life because we feel like if we give in to our sexual sin, we can do something about our lives. Another reason that's kind of related is comfort, ease, or fun. We just want to do it. And another reason outside of that is because we want to express power or control. These are only a few of the reasons why people are tempted to engage in sexual sin. But the issue behind sexual sin is not just the sex It's not just the sex, but how the sex was used. The sex was used to try and receive something that is good, but doing so in a way that is twisted or perverted from God's original intention. How did we get to the point where we have sinned sexually? Turn with me to James, James 1. James 1, verse 13. James writes this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James looks at those who struggle with sin in trial, and he reminds us that we can't say that temptation comes from God. God himself cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. He allows it in our lives, but he does not himself tempt us. So where does that temptation come from? James says it comes from our own hearts. Temptation comes from our own hearts. As each one is carried away and enticed by his own lust, that word lust It's not necessarily a reference to sinful sexual lust, but it references a desire or a longing for something. So when do these lusts cross the line from a simple desire for something to a sinful desire for something? Well, we can tell if we are sinfully desiring something when we move beyond the fact of simply wanting something to doing whatever it takes even sin, to get what we want. If we are willing to sin to get what we want, that's when we've crossed the line from simply desiring something to sinfully desiring something. That could be, that could be sexual sin, but it could also be money. Right? When you move beyond simply just working for money, and you'll do whatever it takes to get it. Right? So it's, it's a very general word here that we're talking about. But when we talk about 
when we talk about this desire, when it becomes so strong that we, we become willing to sin to get what we want, this is uh, what James describes as being carried away, right? You've lost control. You're, you've been, you're, you're um, now being controlled by something. You're enticed by it because it's offering, your, your temptation is offering you something that you desperately want. And you can want good things like love, respect, peace, time to think, comfort, and relaxation. You can want all those things, and those are good things that God has given. But when something or someone, and usually it's someone, enters into your life and prevents you from getting what you want, you get angry. Your desire for these good things grows into your controlling desire, where you are willing to sin to get what you want. And James says that that is when lust has been conceived. That is when it gives birth to sin. And when we finally give in to sin, it brings forth death. This, of course, does not mean that we're going to die right away, but it could result in physical death. It definitely earns us the curse of death, as we know from Romans 6.23, where the wages of sin is earned spiritual death. Now, how does this talk about the root of temptation relate back to the core of sexual sin being our own selfishness. The problem when it comes to sexual sins is found in our own desires. When you allow sexual sin into your life, no matter whether it be lustfully looking at someone that you see in public, looking at pornography, or sexual acts that are prohibited in Scripture, whether they be heterosexual or homosexual, you do it because you want to please yourself. When you engage in those sins, the only person you want to please at that, at that moment is yourself. Even leading up until the moment of your sin, your heart craves, it longs for, it cries out for what you think will bring you satisfaction, relief, enjoyment, whatever it might be that is your operating belief at that time. The truth that governs your thoughts in that moment is that if you get what you desire you will be satisfied. You believe in that moment that what you want is the best thing for you, even if God has clearly forbidden that thing. Every time we sin, we are always trying to obtain something for ourselves. And that is why the scriptures consistently call for us to be humble. It calls for us to die to self. It calls for us to live, to give glory to God. Because all of our sins are rooted in our selfishness. And if we want to live righteously for the Lord, we turn our attention off of ourselves and onto Him. Sexuality is distorted when we are driven by a desire to please ourselves. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 7 and go to verse 3. 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 3 to 5 says this, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here in these verses, Paul elaborates what he meant in verse 2, when he said that people ought to get married because of our tendency to immoralities. We tend to think selfishly when we think about our sexuality in the context of marriage. We rationalize and say, if marriage is the only way that I can legitimately pursue the sexual desire that God has given me, I ought to desire marriage so I can use the gift in a way that does not sin against God. That's not necessarily wrong, but... Who's the focus? I desire marriage so that I can legitimately get sex and not sin against God when I go get it. But look at how Paul frames it. He's talking to couples and he's reminding them that even after a time that they put intimacy off to the side so that they can serve the Lord, Paul tells them not to continually deprive one another so that husband and wife can fulfill their duties to one another to come together again so that Satan will not tempt them to sexual immorality because of their lack of self-control. God's gift of sexuality is meant to be enjoyed in the context of marriage because it it is meant to be a way that husband and wife desire to mutually love and serve one another. It has always been about mutual love and service and submission to one another. Even though, yes, we are called to be fruitful and multiply. Now, some of you might say, but then where's the romance if it's duty? Where's the romance if it's duty? If, we, if it's our duty to serve one another in this way, what about romance? Romance can still be there. Right? Do, do we not tell you, in terms of obedience to the Lord, that you obey God because you love Him? Right? You have a duty to honor God. You have a duty to please Him. You have a duty to live righteously to Him. But that does not mean that you ought to have no love for Him as you do so. And so in a, in a similar way, in a similar way, when a husband and wife have a duty to one another, to serve one another, to meet each other's needs, and to care for one another in sexual union, it's not about the sole expression of of sexuality for oneself, for one person's sake, but it is to serve your spouse. That's completely different, isn't it? Because when you think about sex, normally you just think about what you're trying to get out of it, what you're trying to feel, how you are trying to be fulfilled. But God says, no, that's not what I intended for you. I intended for you to go serve your spouse. That's your duty. That's your obligation. Sexual sin is wrong and an offense before God because every category of sexual sin takes what God intended to express mutual love and submission between a husband and wife and makes it about a pursuit of self. It should never be about self, but it should always be about loving and serving your spouse. Loving and serving your spouse. It's not about you. Never was. It's about your spouse. Just like the gospel was never about you, it's always about 
the glory of God. By the way, the idea of mutual love and service between a husband and wife is exactly why Ephesians 5 says that marriage is a picture of the love between Christ and the church. We don't have time to look at it in depth. Depth, But if marriage is supposed to give us a picture of Christ's love for his church and vice versa, there is an added dimension of seriousness when it comes to the sacredness of marriage. Christ loved us so much that he humbled himself and selflessly became a man and then died on our behalf so that he might save and sanctify us when he rose from the dead. The church as individual members and as a whole, desires to put off the old self and put on the new self so that we may serve Christ and live for him and for his glory so that more can be saved. Mutual love and submission, all for the sake of God's glory to bring his people back to himself for his glory and bring justice upon those who have not repented of their sins is what we do to serve him and to love him. He saves us. He strengthens us. He motivates us to live for him. It's mutual love and submission between Christ and the church. And that's the same thing that is reflected in the marriage relationship. Mutual love and service. That's why marriage isn't about what you can get out of it. That's why Your God-given gift of sexuality is not about what you can get out of it by using someone else or something else. It's always been about service. And when you think about that, the call to purity, the call to reflect God's goodness is so much more important then. God gave us marriage so that husbands and wives might mutually love and serve one another. Sin distorts God's good purpose for marriage as we desire only to serve or express ourselves in our God-given sexuality. But praise be to God that he does not leave us in our sins. We are not without hope. And that leads us to the third necessary truth about our God-given sexuality, and that is God provides deliverance from sin. God provides deliverance from sin. This particular point in our sermon is not necessarily driven by one particular text, but it's an attempt to tie everything from the past two weeks back together since the issue of gender and sexuality are not meant to be examined separate from one another, but it's tough to cover it all at once, which is why we've broken it up. We know that God has a purpose for everything, that that he designed in creation and with these um, uh, good purposes for us in our sexuality. He has a purpose for everything. He has designed it in creation, and these larger purposes and truths are what drive our desire to please Him. It drives our desire to please Him by repenting of our sins and striving to be like Christ. Because of our sin nature, we have all sinned against God. None of us are excluded when it comes to the guilt that we bear before God as we have rebelled from his intended purposes for us. Yet, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have hope for redemption because it is through Christ that everything that was corrupted in the fall will be made right when he returns. And so even if we've managed to keep ourselves pure, 
and have not sinned against God by misusing the sexuality that he's given us, we are certainly still guilty of pursuing after our own desires to please ourselves, oftentimes in rebellion and rejection of the good gender roles that he has given us. Men do so by rejecting leadership or abusing the leadership privileges they have with their wives. Women do so by striving to take the reins, whether it's aggressive or passive, refusing to show respect to their husbands. And we might cringe at some of those generalizations, but there's a reason why throughout the scriptures, men are called to learn to love their wives and to live with them in an understanding way because they're not bent in that way normally. There's a reason why women are called to love their husbands and teach the younger women to love their husbands. And it's a different word for love that the that the women are ta- taught to sh- uh, teach the other younger women to love their husbands. It's a love of liking because men are at times, most of the time, not lovable. Right? And that's why also women are called to respect their husbands in Ephesians 5 because oftentimes men do not act in a way that is worthy of respect. When it comes to love and respect, if you ask someone who's married, if you ask a wife who's married, or obviously they're married, if you ask someone who's married, who's a, who's a lady, whether she loves her husband, she'll tell you yes. She'll tell you yes. The question that you ought to ask her is, do you respect your husband? Do you like your husband even? And oftentimes, because of the sinfulness of her husband, she'll, be, she'll say to you, I love my husband. I don't respect him. Or I don't like him, but I love him. And husbands, because they're driven to want respect, will often shut down when they don't receive that respect that they think that they deserve from their wives. And so you see, there is a sinfulness that drives marital relationships. It's a nasty cycle that goes back and forth as men try to show love to their wives, fail to do so because they don't live with their wives in an understanding way, and wives tend not to respect their husbands until he does something that's respectable. It's ingrained in our sin nature to continue on in this cycle. To continue to sin against one another. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, there is hope for us to be the people that God meant for us to be. Growing to be like Christ calls for us to die to self and to seek to serve one another so that we can push each other towards Christ's likeness. And that's another reason why marriage is such a good thing. Because when you get married, you make a promise, an unbreakable covenant with your spouse to be with them through thick or thin no matter how unlovable, how sinful they are, and you're making a commitment, a lifelong commitment, to continue to push them towards Christ, and they will do the same to you. That's why marriage is such a unique thing. 
It's a commitment, a lifelong commitment to push one another to Christ-likeness, to encourage one another to Christ-likeness. And as we do so, we begin to show each other and those around us what it means for men and women to be made in the image of God together. We strive to be holy, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.16, because God himself is holy. When the people of God strive to live not for themselves, but for him who died on our behalf as we demonstrate mutual love and service towards one another, we show the world a picture of what God has done for us through Christ. And for this reason, we always hold out the hope of the gospel to the world and strive to live out the gospel in all of its fullness, not just parts of it. The call for moral purity is not one we teach and pass on to others so that we can lord our moral superiority over, over them. It is so we can prove to others the goodness of God and his power to save. We have a little bit of time, so let me have a side note. Oftentimes when we think about loving one another, we tend to think about the particular ways that we want to be loved. And that's been summed up by, um, I believe it's Gary Chapman, as love languages. Right? Some of you have probably heard of language, love languages. And basically, love languages are the ways that we say we most or we best receive love from other people. Right? So... For instance, for me, one of the ways that I feel loved and appreciated is if I, get, if I receive kind words, right? affirmation. Um, and oftentimes we think that unless someone shows me love in the particular way that I want to be loved, in the particular way that I receive love, I'm actually not being loved, even if they're trying to love me. What I'll say is this. When it comes to love languages, brothers and sisters, we actually have to learn how to receive love in ways that we don't normally receive them, in, the ways that, uh, in a way that um, others give it to us. Because when we only desire to receive love in the way that we like to receive it, love becomes about us, right? Love becomes about us. Rather, I think what you'll find is that, and of course we can serve one another in this way. It's not a bad thing for us to want to serve one another if we know that uh, one person likes gifts, one person likes um, affection, one person likes uh, words of affirmation. That's okay, right? But consider this. If your future spouse does not love you in the way that you receive love, that's actually God's grace to you. That's God's grace to you to show you that you don't need to be loved in the way that you think you ought to be loved. Rather, what you need is him. We don't think about it that way often, right? Because oftentimes whenever we are offended by someone or we feel not appreciated, we just focus on ourselves and how we're not appreciated. But God, withholding what you think you deserve is his grace to you so that you learn not to focus on self, but to focus only on him. 
Anyway, that's just a side note. But I, thought, I, th- I think it's really important for us to consider is that we want to make sure that love is not about us, right? but it's always meant to point us to something greater. Going back to purity. Purity is important for us to pursue because when we live out pure lives, we show other people the power of God to save. And in ministering to those who struggle with heterosexual lusts and sins, those common passages that you've heard, studied, and perhaps even memorized about our need for purity are important. Not simply because God says so, therefore just do it. It's important because God has designed for us to show his power in the world in our testimony. And when we only live for what will make us happy, regardless of what God says, we show the world that we, we too have no regard for his purpose and designs. We show them that we too do not believe that the gospel is strong enough to deliver us from our former sins, that we are hypocrites and we're proud of it. Our purity is important because we want to show that God truly is better than anything that the world has to offer. If we choose to worship the gifts God gives us rather than God himself, we communicate from a practical standpoint that he isn't worth it. Brothers and sisters, we must strive at all times and in all things to bring glory to God by accurately reflecting him to others. Even if we must eat humble pie and ask for forgiveness when the world doesn't even think we've done anything wrong. We answer to God for everything. So don't think that just because no one else thinks you're culpable that you're fine. Now I know that many of you want to know how we can defend the faith or minister to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction or identify themselves with same-sex orientation. So we're going to cover that right now. Uh, And I know some of you are probably wondering, why did you wait this long to get there? Why do you give us only 10 minutes or so of this, of this topic? Part of the reason why I wanted to cover sexuality as a whole is because we as Christians tend to gloss over a proper understanding of biblical sexuality. Another part of the reason why is because the evangelical church as a whole, not just San Francisco Bible Church, but the evangelical church as a whole has failed to minister well to the LGBTQ community, making their sexual sin seem like it is the most important issue when, in fact, God's concern is not merely their sexual sins, but all of their sins. And so that's why I talked about sexual sin in general, to show you, brothers and sisters, that God's crosshairs are on all of us for all of our sins, not just for those who struggle with same-sex attraction or for those who are same-sex oriented. It's for all of our sins, not just sexual sins. By delaying our discussion on homosexuality till now, I hope that you see that the issue is not just repentance over sexual sin, but for all sin. And therefore... This is not going to be comprehensive coverage of what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. There are books, many books, that you can read for hours and hours and hours that will do a better job than I could ever do in 45 minutes or an hour, whatever. So I refer you to those books. 
Right? But I do want us to consider how to lovingly minister to these dear men and women who are also created in God's image. I hope that these books that I recommend to you that are on the back of your handouts can serve you well. Now, to begin, I want to quickly establish how I'm going to use uh, these two words that I just used, same-sex attracted and same-sex orientation. There's not a lot of consensus on these definitions, so that's why I'm defining for you um, what I mean so that if it doesn't square with something else that someone else says, you understand that this is not agreed upon by everyone. Okay? Same-sex attraction often refers to how someone tends to find those of the same sex as attractive. They're only attracted, they are primarily attracted to those of the same sex. Same-sex orientation, on the other hand, refers to not just an attraction, but an active pursuit of sexual activity with someone of the same sex. Okay? So those are two very general, okay, general, broad definitions uh, some people differ in their definitions, but I just want to let you know how I'm using it so that when I use it, you get what I mean. In terms of defending the faith, we actually don't really have a ton of work to do. We don't have a ton of work to do. The Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sin, and the biblical authors are very definitive in what they say. The Bible passages that I've listed on your handouts under the label, the clobber passages, have very clear language that describes the Bible's stance on homosexuality. And these verses have often, be, have often been used by many Christians to explain why homosexuality is wrong. And in fact, they've been used so often that they are referred to as clobber passages because they've been used to hammer home the truth to those who are trying to defend the rightness of homosexuality. And that usually means, if it's being used to hammer something, that has been done in an unloving manner, that has been done in a cruel manner, not in a compassionate one. We often use these clobber passages as weapons to prove our point, drop the mic, and walk off feeling justified in our own righteousness. However, and this is why I said what I said about sexual sin not being the main issue. When you get a chance and you observe these passages in their context, what you'll see is that these verses that have very definitive language about the sinfulness of homosexuality, what you'll see is that homosexuality is not the only sin that's targeted. It's one of many. It's one of many. And some of it's not even sexual. So what you see is that God is calling for people to repent of all sin, not just sexual sin. The church has built for itself a reputation that only concerns itself with the sins of abortion and homosexuality. They are significant sins. They are big deals to God. But what I'm hoping you'll see as you explore these verses in context, not by themselves, but in context, is that God is concerned with all sin. He's concerned with all sin, not just homosexuality. That these people who struggle with homosexuality are just like those who struggle with pride. 
They're just like those who struggle with anger. They're just like those who struggle with greed. Every person who is an unbeliever is like the people in Nineveh who do not know the difference between their left hand and their right lost in their sins, spiritually dead. Every single person out there, no matter what they struggle with in terms of sin, desperately needs the gospel. Desperately needs the gospel. And so we as a church have to go beyond the ethics of homosexuality, that's clear, and do the hard work of going further to show compassion for real people who are lost in all of their sin, while at the same time not compromising in the truth. But don't forget the compassion part. We must have compassion for those who struggle with their sin, for those who are lost in their sin. Loving those who struggle with same-sex attraction or who identify themselves as same-sex oriented requires for us to show them the love of God And not just to say God loves you. Everyone believes that God loves them. You know why everyone believes that God loves them? Because they're prideful and sinful. Like, why wouldn't God love me? And you've heard me say that before. But like, why wouldn't God love me, right? Aren't I awesome? And that's where we have to show them, no, you're not awesome. You're sinful. But God loves you despite the fact that you're sinful. And he sent Christ to die on the cross for your sins while you were still helpless at the right time. So that when you believe in him, you'll be saved. We need to show them how much God loves them. How he moves everything out of the way so that he can redeem them from their sin. All of it, not just the homosexuality. And repentance from homosexual sin is necessary in the long run, but it is not the primary goal. It is not the primary goal. Many a Christian who has struggled with same-sex attraction has given up in frustration and pursued a homosexual lifestyle because they have tried everything that they could to stop feeling the way that they feel, to try and put away those desires, only to find frustration and shame as they remain the same. And this is where we've done a horrible job of loving them. We just said, just pray. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Your heart should break when you hear stories of people who said, I tried to give my life to Christ. I tried to pursue righteousness, and I just couldn't. So I'm just going to live the way that I I, want to live. I'm just going to pursue what I want to pursue. Your heart should break for them. You should long that they understand the gospel. You should long that they understand that God is not, in in the gospel, he's not solely concerned with them being straight. He's concerned with them being saved. This is where we have to help those who struggle see that the gospel is concerned with their belief in the Lord and their repentance of their sins as a whole. The gospel will change them. But it does not promise 
The gospel does not promise that they will no longer feel homosexual desire, just as the gospel does not promise that heterosexuals will no longer lust after members of the opposite sex. They may continue to struggle for a time and perhaps even for the rest of their lives, but the gospel is not concerned with just making them straight, repenting of their homosexual lust and turning to heterosexual lust. Does that make sense? The gospel is not concerned with that. It is concerned about righteousness as a whole. It is concerned about their faith. They may still struggle with same-sex attraction. They may still struggle with, at times, giving in to their homosexual desire. That is where they need to understand that those struggles, they don't define them. Their identity in Christ defines them. And that's why we would encourage them also not to identify themselves as gay Christians. They might struggle with same-sex attraction, but they're not gay Christians. They're Christians. If they've truly repented of their sins and believed upon Christ. What those who struggle with same-sex attraction need to realize, and as well as those who struggle with heterosexual lust, is that we may not have immediate control, okay? We may not have immediate control over our deeply entrenched desires. You might not have immediate control over your deeply entrenched desires, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can have eventual control over our sinful desires, whether they be heterosexual or homosexual. We can feed ourselves with the truth so that the lusts of our flesh do not have control over us, but we deny ourselves and follow after Him. That's a call for everyone, to deny yourself and follow after him. One of my professors put it this way. In a fight between two tigers, the one who will win is the one who is well-nourished. Of course, the illustration eventually breaks down. But the point is this. If someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction or is coming out of a life where they were pursuing a homosexual lifestyle, they will have to fight to feed their hearts with spiritual truths to remind themselves that they must flee all of their sinful desires not just the same-sex attracted or homosexual ones. They have to remember that there is hope, that there is deliverance in the Lord. And if they begin to feed themselves with the right doctrines, with the right desires, with the desire to say no to self, to believe that God will provide with the temptation a way of escape, that God will enable them to stand up under temptation, and that God always desires to help us pursue righteousness, then, then it will be easier for them to pursue a loving obedience to God in everything. And that's not just for those who struggle with homosexual sins and desires. It's for the same thing for heterosexual sins and desires as well. We all, we all have to be convinced that we must radically deal with our sins. We all must be convinced that it is better to enter into heaven without eyes, hands, feet, 
whatever it might be that causes us to stumble than to enter into hell whole. All of us must be convinced of the fact that God is better. That we can deny self to follow after him because denying ourself is not bad when you get the king of the universe. When you get your highest possible good, denying yourself earthly, temporary, fleeting pleasure is not hard at all. Okay, it can be hard sometimes, but you know what I'm saying? In the grand scheme of things, when you take a big picture view, it is so much more worth it to pursue hard after God. And this means, this means that as we enter into this lifelong fight with our sin, that those who struggle with killing their sin and those who help them fight, those who help them stay accountable must be patient. They must be willing to listen, to hear them, to understand them, and to patiently, lovingly hold out the hope of the gospel, knowing that just speaking the truth doesn't change lives immediately. It doesn't change action immediately. Patience and love is the key in our fight for all sin, against all sin, not just the sexual ones. So much more can be said about gender and sexuality. And what I want to remind you of is God's love for all of us. He created us for a purpose. And he has a good plan for our sexuality. Therefore, our sexuality is meant to be embraced in a God-honoring way. We should not be ashamed of the fact that God has created us as sexual beings. However, we also must remember that God did not create us as sexual beings so that we can be singularly focused on pursuing our sexuality and expressing our sexuality. Rather, his purpose in giving us our sexuality is to use it as a picture of mutual love and service that ought to exist between husband and wife, and to show in an even greater way the love that exists between Christ and his church. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that if you have time, you'll read some of those books uh, that I've recommended. They've been really helpful for me. Um, and uh, I hope that you would read some of these books just so that for your, for your own edification and so that you can have a greater uh, compassion and love for those who struggle. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. It is It's so difficult to cover such an important topic in so short a time and to basically end it just with hopes that people will pursue further knowledge later. But Father, we pray that you would use your word and these principles that drive us to loving others, to be a, a catalyst in our lives to pursue more knowledge of you. We understand that there is so much more in your word that needs to be explored, so much more in your word that needs to be applied practically to our lives. And we pray that Father, you would give us an insatiable desire to pursue hard after righteousness, after Christ. 
We pray that for those of us who are in the throes of battle, fighting our sexual sins, that you would give us hope. That you would remind us that you are far better than any false promise that sexual immorality might offer us. We pray that you would give us the strength, the courage, the conviction to radically deal with these sins in our lives. Whether they be heterosexual lusts or whether they be homosexual lusts. Father, we desperately need you. We desperately need your help to pursue righteousness. To have a mind that is focused on your glory. We pray, Lord, that you show us more of yourself, that you show us your glory so that we could be all in when it comes to pursuing you and your glory. Glorify yourself as we turn our attention to discussion and fellowship. This is your son's name we pray. Amen.